Section number four of the Black Cat, volume one, number 11, August 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek, a.k.a. Mr. Turtle. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 11, August 1896. Section 4, Tim's Vacation, by L. E. Shattuck. He wasn't much of a boy as far as size goes, for he stood hardly four feet high, and he had a thin, peaked face, which made him look considerably smaller than he really was. And he wasn't much of a boy as far as looks go either, for he wore a rusty old black coat, a grimy bosom shirt, several sizes too large for him, without a collar, and a pair of cast-off pants, badly worn at the knees. His feet were encased in a pair of ragged tennis shoes, and perched on the back of his shock of red hair was a dingy old straw hat, with the band and part of the brim missing. To the casual observer, our Tim was a ludicrous combination of boy and clothes, but to those who looked closer, the little thin face under the old straw hat and the long, thin arms and hands which emerged from the frayed sleeves of his ragged coat added an element of pathos to this mirth-stirring picture. Tim was elevator boy in the office of the Morning Post. Where he came from, no one seems to know. But from the first day of his arrival, the youngster became a general favorite. He was liked upstairs by the editors, reporters, and compositors, and downstairs by the pressmen, mailing room employees, and by the men in the office and business department. In short, there was not a soul in the establishment who did not know and like the sociable little fellow who took so active an interest in all that was going on. But it was in the local room where Tim stood in the highest favor, and where he most delighted to spend his spare time. During his noon hour, he often helped the city editor edit copy by handing him his mislaid shears or mucilage bottle. And when any of the men in the city staff came bustling in with a scoop, it was Tim who aided him in landing it by running the old elevator up the five stories at a terrific rate of speed. Indeed, he was a born newspaper man and could appreciate the value of news of whatever kind almost as quickly as the best reporter on the force. Occasionally, we bantered the boy about his personal appearance. It's a shame, a downright shame, Tim. Tom Burns, our police reporter, would say, that a man of your capabilities, holding the position you do, and pulling the salary you do, should go around in such a rig as that. It's a disgrace to the office. Why don't you take a brace, Timmy, and slick up? To all such remarks, Tim would listen calmly until the conclusion. Then, turning upon his tormentor with a withering glance, drawing himself up to the extreme height of his diminutive stature, he would reply with a saucy wag of his head, Look here, if you take me for a Vanderbilt, you've slipped your trolley, that's all. I think Tim's got a girl, and wastes all his money on her, Dick Johnson, our society man, would chime in. Girls be blowed, was the usual disgusted response to this sally. I don't cut no ice with girls. And the little Tim would disappear down the hallway in response to a call from the elevator bell, leaving the local room in a roar of laughter. Tim had been with us for about six months, when, one summer evening, I entered the elevator car, the little fellow accosted me with, Say, Bill, look at this. He addressed all the men in the local force by some contraction of their first name, and none of them took it amiss, although more than one was old enough to be the boy's father. As he spoke, the boy pulled the thumb-marked envelope from his ragged coat and handed it to me. Glancing at the address, I read the familiar cramped hand of Mr. Hopper, the managing editor. Mr. Timothy O'Brien. While down in the lower left-hand corner, enclosed in brackets, was the inscription, Manager Elevator Department. Read it, said Tim proudly. This is what I read. Mr. Timothy O'Brien. Dear Sir, in the assignment of vacations, 
Yours has been fixed for the week beginning June 14th. Wishing you a most enjoyable time, I am. Very respectfully yours, Leon H. Hopper, Managing Editor. What do you think of that? Asked Tim. Think? Why, I think it's great, I said as I handed back the precious document. Really, the situation was delicious. Not only had kind old Mr. Hopper remembered the little elevator boy with a vacation, but he had forwarded him a formal notification, similar to those sent to every man on the staff. From the knitting on the boy's brow, however, I saw that something more was expected of me concerning that notification. At length, he said slowly, Say, Bill, what do you do with a vacation anyway? A jocose remark rose on my lips, but it died away at the sight of the genuine puzzled expression of the thin little face, and a hard lump rose in my throat. That last question of Tim's gave me a momentary glimpse of another side of the little fellow's life, and set me thinking. Could it be possible that he had never been on a vacation? Haven't you ever been on a vacation, Tim? I asked. Nixie, was the reply. You see, I've had to work steady ever since I was a kid, and I went to the park once in a while for the afternoon, but you wouldn't call that a vacation, would you? That hard lump rose still higher in my throat, and I experienced watery feelings about the eyes. No, I replied. That wasn't much of a vacation, Tim. A real sure enough vacation is where you go out of the city and have a splendid time. Go out of your city? asked Tim, eyes and mouth wide open at my reply. Where do you go when you're out of the city? Oh, there's a number of places, I answered. Some people go to the seaside and some to the mountains. Say, I think I'd like the mountains best, said Tim. I ain't much stuck on water, a statement bore out of the condition of his hands and face. Say, a mountain's awfully high, ain't it? Don't they have the elevators there? Maybe I could get a job of running their machine at night. That last question went to my heart. I had been brought up on a farm among the White Mountains, and for half an hour that noon, I talked to Tim of the joys of country life, trying to instill in that cramped little soul some vague idea of the bigness and freshness and beauty of the region among the New Hampshire hills. To all this, Tim listened at first much as a blind man might when informed of the joys of sight, but when I finished my eulogy by asking him to go home with me and share my vacation among the mountains, his eyes sparkled with delight. Will I go? he cried, prancing like a young colt. You'll bet I go. But... He paused in his demonstrations of joy, and a troubled look settled over his face. But what, Tim? I asked. What's the trouble now? Say, Bill, how's it about your pay when you're on vacation? He asked. Your see, he went on in a hesitating voice. The rent's pretty near due, and mother can't pay it alone. On learning that every man in the office received pay for the time he was on his vacation, just the same as if he had worked, the boy's face cleared. Say, that's slick, ain't it? He exclaimed, and whistling merrily, he rushed off to answer an elevator call. That night, at about twelve o'clock, came a telephonic call from Burns. Tell Raymond that I've run across a double murder in the Polish district, was the message. I'm going down there for full particulars and say that I want to have Tim come to the all-night Polish coffee house for a copy at one o'clock. The police aren't onto it yet, and it will be a big scoop. Upon learning that he was to have a hand in the landing of a murder scoop, Tim, for the second time during the day, pranced with joy. All right, sir, he replied, after listening to the city editor's instructions, his black eyes sparkled with a genuine newspaper instinct. I'll get that story up here so red-hot it'll sizzle your hands. An hour later, Burton, the night editor, came to the local room, frowning anxiously. "'Any signs of Burns's murder story?' he asked the city editor. "'I'm holding the front page open for it.' 
The copy will have to be here inside of ten minutes, or I can't get the paper out in time to catch the early trains. He had scarcely finished speaking when a terrific crash sounded through the building, followed by a shrill, piercing cry. In an instant, every man in the local room was on his feet and rushing down the corridor in the direction of the elevator. Almost with the echo of the crash and scream, a premonition of their meaning had clutched at our heartstrings. Yet accustomed as we were to scenes of suffering and hardship, not one of us but looked with blanching face upon the sight which awaited us. There, upon the floor, near the elevator doorway, lay little Tim, the blood gushing from his poor, crushed legs. As the boy's eyes singled out the night editor from the crowd gathered around him, he held up one weak hand, clutching a roll of manuscript. It was Tim Burns's murder story. Then, in a faltering voice, the little fellow said, I'm sorry I'm late, but I've landed the scoop, haven't I? You see, the cable broke, and I couldn't stop her. I made a jump for it, and if my foot hadn't slipped, I'd been all right. Yes, you've landed your scoop, my boy, said the night editor as he took the copy from the little blood-stained hands and handed it to the foreman. But I'm afraid. And then the big man suddenly knelt by the boy's side, great tears rushing down his cheeks. The next moment... A great wave of emotion swept over the crowd gathered in the hallway. Among them were men who prided themselves in their hardihood, men who had been accustomed to look unmoved upon the scenes of frightful murders, terrible roadway fatalities, and grisly horrors of every degree. But the sight of the dear little fellow, whose life had grown so close to our own, lying there bruised, broken, dying and still triumphant in his success, swept away the barriers of the sternest self-control. Some screened their eyes. A few, sick with horror, swayed, half-feigning from the hall. One big, gaunt fellow, turning to the wall, buried his head in his arms, and wept like a child. Meantime, everything within our power had been done to make the little fellow easier, as I elbowed my way to where he lay, his head propped up by a bundle of coats, his wounds staunched with damp cloths, he motioned me to bend over him. Tell him not to feel so bad, he whispered. It won't last long. Don't say that, Tim, I answered with would-be cheerfulness. When the doctor comes, he'll bring you round all right. No, we couldn't spare you from the post. But... Tim knew best. When the doctor arrived a few minutes later, his verdict was almost immediate. Fatal injuries. Can't live more than 15 minutes. Do what you can to make him comfortable here, he whispered to those crowded around him. But, though the words were scarcely audible, Tim noted the anxious expression of the kindly eyes and understood. It's no go, is it, Bill? he said, smiling faintly up into my face. Then, as I again bent over him, he half raised himself in my arms, his dimming eyes flashing one last ray of their old light. Say, Bill, he murmured, don't tell the old woman what's happened. It'd break her all up. Tell her, just tell her I've gone on my vacation. 
End of section 4. Recorded by Derek, a.k.a. Mr. Turtle.